0: I wanted to commend you because I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's, you know, I listen to veteran ones, I listen to political ones. A common theme in the last couple of years has been depressing. So it's nice to listen to yours because there's more, uh, I mean, not more, it's upbeat, it's exciting, it's um, stories that uh, help you see more purpose and perspective. Since listening to Frank's, that's our common connection here is friends with Frank. And uh, once I listened to his, I started going back from the beginning of years and listening. And then I thought, you know, we'll we'll talk about it. I'm sure my my brother's just got such a big heart that I thought he would be good for this. So I, I just finished the female Marine. I can't remember her name. Oh, Julia. Yeah. The sharpshooter.
1: She's incredible.
0: And some of the ones that just got me big time. I love the veteran ones, but the, uh, the gold star widows, those reach deep.
1: First, a huge shout out to Josh. Thank you very much for those kind words about my podcast. It means a great deal to me, especially from someone who served our country, because you are the heroes, and I am honored that you listened to this podcast. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Second of all, I originally planned for this podcast episode that you're about to hear, ...to come out on Tuesday. But as it so happened, I was part of an event called Hope on the Hill at the Utah State Capitol. Hope on the Hill is an evening where we remember veterans. Veterans are invited. And it is all about raising awareness for veteran suicide, for veteran mental health. It was a wonderful occasion that I was able to become involved with. We had dinner, a fantastic speaker shiloh harris shiloh was the guest for episode 24 on my podcast shiloh's traumatic injury came when his humvee was hit by an ied three of the people in that explosion did not survive shiloh did survive however his injuries were almost catastrophic causing horrible burns but he has emerged to be an incredible speaker an incredible motivator and a voice for veterans. I was able to meet him when he came out to Utah this week and spend some time with him, and I was not disappointed. He is fantastic. If you have not listened to Shiloh's episode, go to episode 24, and that is Shiloh's American Story. The great thing about the veteran community is you are surrounded by people that are absolutely amazing and patriotic. That same night, I was able to help Julia. She was a guest on episode 39, The Best Shot in the Marines. Julia raises awareness for veterans' mental health through the arts. I was able to assist her and some other folks in setting up an incredible display of art by veterans who have healed through the arts. Grateful for Julia's friendship. And lastly, I was able to introduce Justin Meller to Shiloh Harris. Justin is a person who is fiercely patriotic. He does all he can to raise money for veterans and first responders. He is with an organization that he created called United We March. Every September, he does the Gunnison Gut Check, where he raises money for veterans, first responders, It is amazing. If you want information on that, please check out the Gunnison Gut Check or United We March. This is a very important, almost spiritual event. I can't say enough about it. But check out those three episodes if you have not listened to them. And then finally, today's episode is with John and Joshua Nicholson. John and Joshua are brothers who served in the U.S. Army. They have a deep appreciation for family, service, and their country. On this episode, John and Josh share their thoughts on the military, lessons learned, and American greatness. This is Josh and John's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guests today are brothers, Josh and John Nicholson. Welcome to the both of you.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: You are welcome. I have to start this off by saying Josh was the one who initially contacted me because he knows one of my former guests, Frank Fields. And he said, You need to talk to my brother, John. He is a patriot, he served our country. But what Josh neglected to tell me, which John informed me, is that Josh has served our country as well, that he is a patriot, and that as an older brother, I don't know if you know this, Josh, but John said that he really looks up to you. And that (laughs) you were a main force for him joining the military. So you both have stories to share, and I'm excited to hear where this will take us. Let's start from the beginning. Which one of you would like to tell us a little bit about how you grew up?
0: I'll let the older brother start.
1: Okay. Go ahead, John. Our father is a doctor
2: and he moved our family to Mobile, Alabama and attended uh, medical school down there. And uh, that's pretty much where we grew up is, is down in the South. So it was my mom pretty much raising us. My dad was at medical school. So it was me, Joel as our as the middle brother, and then Josh, we all grew up. And then uh, my, my sister was actually born in Alabama while we were down there. We pretty much were in the South. Uh, our father was, was in medical school the whole time, and that was our upbringing. My mother was pretty much running uh, the house since father was in medical school, and she was a team mom and just a solid role model around us. She is kind of like a big go-getter of our family, and pretty much I'd say a big heart of our family. She has pretty much guided us along through her whole military career because going forward, my mom, while we were in the military, became a, a mother of military servicemen, and what she would do was she would organize the whole town to come together and provide packages and letters and community support to soldiers wherever they are stationed at that have served throughout the community to sum it up my father was the one that joined in the military and he was a medic and he served before he met my mother so he pretty much got this whole ball rolling and from there he was a medic and then he went to medical school and then became a doctor and then he moved us to California. Growing up we moved to uh, Bishop, California which brings us to pretty much where our parents are currently and I feel like that is pretty much our home because when we were younger my dad being in medical school we moved all over the place just because that's where they would Medical school, then you got internship, and then you got um, residency Residency after that, and then becoming a doctor. That's pretty much kind of our childhood growing up. I'm the oldest. And then Joel is the second one. He, Joel joined the Air Force. That doesn't really count.
1: Is that why he's not here? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they're the pansies of the military? <laughs> they're the ones right. with the cushy barracks?
2: And...
0: They don't <laughs> yeah. call them barracks. <laughs>
1: What do they call them? Apartments?
0: They call them dorms. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I have to ask though, does your sister's name start with a J and what yes. is her name? Her name is Jamie. Jamie. And are either one of your parents, a J name? Where did that come from? Your mom was uh, just partial to J.
0: They said that us three boys were just by accident. And then, uh, so then they intentionally named Jamie, uh, to keep it with J and then we had dogs with J's and. So, my parents and grandparents would get us confused. Teachers all the time.
1: Well, she didn't yeah. want your sister to feel left out, right? Exactly. Well, tell me, let's go with you, Josh. What interested you in the military? When did that happen? Why?
0: Uh, I'd say growing up, I was interested. So our grandfathers were all in the service. My mom's dad, he was a life. He retired, a Marine, a major out of um, Toro in tustin in southern california we were there for a couple of years we lived down there before bishop um and then my dad's dad was a mine in the navy so he would go out in a little boat in front of the larger boat blow up mines or find them and then later on in life my mom was adopted at birth she eventually found her uh, biological mother her husband which would be later our step-grandfather he was a medic on the beaches of normandy oh
1: wow um
0: so a lot of military in our family and like my brother said, um, my dad was an army and the medic and then uncles and and uh, all Marines. So I wanted to join from an early age, uh, even going through high school, I knew I was going to join. So all I cared about was getting a, a 3.0 for sports because I didn't care about college at the time and just getting ready for the service. Me joining was a lot like um, one of your previous guests, Travis Mills. I I wanted to be a Marine. Um, And then when I talked to the recruiters, I know uh, where this is going. (laughs) They just said, Oh, you get to be a Marine. And uh, okay, well, what else is there? Just a Marine. And then the Army, you know, I'm no economist, but they offered me the job I wanted, the station I wanted, extra college money, a signing bonus. Then the Marines offered nothing. And my ASAP score was too high to go in the Marines anyway. So.
1: Oh, that is hilarious. What about you, John? What made you go in the direction of the military? Is it the same? Is it a little different?
2: At the time, I felt like I was just, I was in junior college and just kind of going through the motions, played baseball in junior college. And then I tried that a few times and got cut. Uh, You realize how fast you're a small fish in a big pond. And then from there, I just felt like I needed some direction. It was a coincidence, I just went down to go check it out with a recruiter the morning of September 11th, 2001, when the planes hit.
1: No, are you serious?
2: Yeah, it was a coincidence. Uh, I didn't go down there because of what happened. I was actually, he picked me up at like four or five in the morning, uh, maybe earlier. And it's like a four and a half hour drive to LA to the processing station. The recruiter took me down there, and I remember I was half awake because I was sleeping on the way down, and he woke me up and said that there some terrorist attacks on the towers. I had no idea because I've never been to New York. And I once we got the processing station, it was all over the news and on the TV. They actually shut down the whole processing station that day because there was a lot of angry Americans and individuals that wanted to join just because of what happened. They wanted to give people time to process. I couldn't sign up that day. I had to go on September 12th and go back to talk to the recruiter or, or figure out the job placement and everything. I initially went down and got interested in the army with my buddy Morgan Boyd that I was actually working with. And we actually technically kind of signed up together, but we didn't. We had the same recruiter, but we didn't go down there together, sign up together because he had a different job. But he kind of got to help me get the ball rolling. And then actually, both of my brothers, uh, more Josh than Joel, because we had something in common, wanting to go in the army together. So, Josh was kind of telling me what to do. I felt like I just needed some uh, discipline and some uh, direction in life. I joined to kind of better myself. And then September 11th kind of helped kind of uh, influence that with kind of how things went down with the, the, the attacks. So, it was a rewarding time to actually join. And it's actually on my ID card of my in-processing time is September 11, 2001. So I'm kind of a September 11th baby. And if I would have stayed in, I could have been retired by now. But hey, shoulda, coulda. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Josh, you went in first then, is that correct?
0: Yes, ma'am. I went and uh, delayed entry.
1: Okay, can you walk us through your military experience, what that all entailed?
0: Uh, so, March of my senior year is when I signed the dotted line. I went down to the same MEPS military entry processing station in LA to sign that and swear in. And then I left for basic training in August of 2000. Uh, I decided to be a combat engineer because as the recruiters going down the list for me, uh, he was explaining what each job was, and then he said engineer was about explosives, and so I said, that's me.
1: Boys like to blow things up.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I had many of uh deputy sheriff chasing us in high school, and <laughs> earlier we were blowing things up around town. So.
1: You either need to blow things up or light fires.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm guilty of both. Uh, so basically training for me was at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, the nickname Misery, uh, definitely uh, holds high there. I started in August, where your hands get burned when you're doing push-ups on the asphalt, and then ended. Uh, I think it was the 17th or 19th of December, where your hands are freezing cold on the on the asphalt. Misery is. <laughs> I, I hate Fort Leonard <laughs> That place is horrible. Uh, basic was uh, to do its job. Uh, developed me from a kind of a spoiled American the structured soldier that that you're supposed to be and then uh, do you want me to keep going
1: it depends on if you want you want john to jump in and tell us about your basic and then we'll start talking about your service should we do that sure all right john how was yours was yours miserable as well
2: i went down with recruiter to the processing station i got all signed up the day i was actually going into the army my father dropped me off down in l.a and it was actually a very proud moment because looking back, my father and mother took me to college, dropped me off at college. And the one time I saw my father without facial hair, he shaved his whole mustache when I was a freshman in college. And that was just so weird because growing up, my dad has always had a mustache. Him dropping me off at college to him dropping off me off at the, uh, to depart with the, with the army. That day, it was a lot of of healthy and happy tears because it's kind of like a release. My dad is just kind of releasing me off into the the wild. I went to basic training in uh, 2001, November 2001 at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. And actually, my AIT was there too, so I didn't have to go very far. And when I joined, I actually asked Josh, what a good job for me would be he thought a good job for me would be actually a chaplain's assistant
1: really you're blowing up things and he's going to be a chaplain's assistant
2: (laughs) yeah so I don't know I looked at all the job opportunities and everything and I just said hey what if I would be a chaplain's assistant and then the recruiter offered it to me and and gave me these different options and I signed the dotted line and and from there Fort Jackson in November. It's November, December, it starts getting really cold down there. I remember just late nights, just drill sergeants just smoking us and making us do, do crazy stuff outside, indoors, and same thing, throwing trash cans to wake us up. It was just pure madness and basic training. And then you transition to AIT. I feel like basic training was just a fun camping trip compared to AIT because AIT was a lot harder because just a whole bunch of chaplain's assistants together. They wanted to make sure that we were the strongest of the chaplain assistants, not like people looking down at us. Being a chaplain assistant is just an extra duty because that's what a lot of soldiers just think that being a chaplain assistant was an extra duty. They're like, how'd you get stuck with that extra duty? I'm like, I didn't, it was my job. And John,
1: can you tell us what is AIT? I haven't heard that name yet or that acronym
2: gosh, is it advanced individual training? Yeah. Okay. So that's the training
0: specifically for your job.
1: Gotcha. I don't think I've heard that or maybe I haven't, I just haven't paid attention to it or yeah. So you did that and you found that much harder.
2: Yeah. So basic training is for like 12 weeks and then AIT, you actually learn your job and that was just another form of basic training because they're just really strict. But yeah, so you just learn your job. And then from there, They they will release you into your MOS, which is your actual job, and then that's when you'll get stationed uh, wherever they send you to.
1: Now, I have to ask, is your brother um, Joel serving at this time as well?
2: Yes.
0: Yes.
1: Your parents, especially your mom, I shouldn't say especially your mom, but as a mom myself, could you see, I'm sure she was very proud of you, but... There had to have been a lot of fear for her. You're going in at this time where it's very dangerous. We don't know what's going to happen. Could you see that trepidation or that fear in your mom? Or did she try to be stalwart and not show that? I just can't imagine as a mom having three boys and all serving at such a dangerous time. I would be so fearful, so afraid.
0: I got a good story for that to your point that uh, at one point in time that my brother, Joel was in Turkey, John was in Korea, and then I was in Iraq. And so, yeah, she said that she was on her knees praying a lot through your podcast. Have you, has anyone discussed a red cross message? I think there was a couple.
1: I don't know. That doesn't sound familiar. So,
0: so when you're overseas, you know, obviously you're not talking to people, especially early on in the invasion, which, which I was in Um, We didn't have Internet. Our only phone use was very limited satellite phones. Sometimes if a soldier received a Red Cross message, that's never good news. Usually that's a death in the family. Usually someone's going to die. Some major issue at home. I can't remember the exact date, um, but my mom sent a Red Cross message to me telling me to call her. Because the last time we spoke, our base had gotten mortared, and I had to go, and I did. She didn't hear from me for a few weeks, and so I was pretty furious with her. So any soldiers that know and understand Red Cross messages, that just you don't want to receive one. And so when I called her, all she wanted to do was make sure I was okay. Oh. And so I, I was furious with her. I said, don't you ever. Send me a Red Cross message again, unless it's a, you know, legitimate family emergency. But it was because... the
1: only way she was desperate. She was a desperate mother, Josh. She had to hear your voice and make sure you were okay. I get that.
0: The Red Cross messages typically go to the top, usually come from really? grade brigade down down. And so everyone in my chain of command heard, you know, my mommy wanted me to call her. And I...
1: <laughs> Does she have to give a specific reason as to why she's doing it?
0: The process, actually, I'm not sure. I don't see Red Cross not sending a message. I, okay. I'm sure. But I, I mean, especially that was early on in the, in, well, at least in the Iraq war. So maybe they're, uh, maybe they changed their process later, but.
1: Okay. Because I would imagine they would have Red Cross messages all the time about moms calling, wanting to talk to their sons or daughters to make sure they were okay.
0: Yeah. I wish they told her no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did your deployments go? How many deployments did you have, Josh? what was the uh, extent?
0: For me, I had three two to the Middle East and one to Kosovo. So yeah, so I got, I graduated my AIT December of 2000. And then uh, um, was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. And then September 11th happened. I was doing PT at the time. So we were in the um, mountain zone. So it was just after seven when everything happened. So with the PT, you get up 6am uh, formation, you'd usually do physical training for an hour. And then you go and get cleaned up shower for eight o'clock formation. So I was in the dorm room. Or I'm sorry, dorm barracks when, uh, uh I had just showered bringing and yourself down
1: to the air force.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. I was <laughs> talking about earlier, still on my mind. Um, one of my roommates had come out and, and told me to turn on the TV and the first plane had just hit. And that was when, just before he we went to formation was when the second plane hit if I have my timeline correct that was a weird time because we were in garrison so if anyone any of your soldiers talk about garrison you're basically at your base you know you're back at your barracks Um, you just go to the company headquarters Um, so we were all there surrounded by the tv all day the base got shut down nobody was leaving or going and and I actually had a plane flight scheduled to go home the following weekend to go see what would be my new biological grandmother that my mom had just met um, and her family obviously the planes all got shut down so I ended up they still let me go surprisingly but I drove from Colorado Springs to Bishop which is about a 1100 miles or so um, at that point we all knew that we were going to get deployed somewhere and and uh, we wanted to for sure December of 01 uh, was my first deployment to Kuwait it was in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, um, but we weren't necessarily we were in a hazard duty zone, but it wasn't you know combat or anything. We were doing uh, a lot of training, and then um, we got home in May of 02 and uh, and then left again just ten months later to Iraq in March 03. So our our unit, our division, was the second wave behind Third ID as far as Army goes from the south in Kuwait. And, uh, that was a frustrating point for all of us because that's like sitting on the sidelines when you're on the football team and you know, you want to get out there and play. Um, so that was, um, March of 03, late March, early April, when we deployed to, to
1: invade Iraq with both of you on September 11th and you're seeing what's going on and you're hearing what's going on about the evil what does that do does that pump you up to want to go and fight does it put a fear in you what does that feel like
0: good
2: john for me just being in the middle of the plane hitting and everything i felt a sense of of bravery and courage uh at the time, I wasn't even scared. It's just I have no idea. I, uh, all those fears just went right over me. I got released by my father. He kicked me to the curb. No, he didn't kick me to the curb. <laughs> he just it was a healthy goodbye. So I just just wanted to just see what the military was all about. It's crazy because it was a very uh, rewarding time to be a soldier. Because uh, actually. The community, uh, people in airports, when you're wearing a your uniform. They just thank you for your service, and this, uh, it just felt like your heart's just beating in a very, very uh, shining uh, way. You're just kind of walking around with your head held high, like this is a, this is a very uh, great time to be in. I, I, I don't think there was much, much fear, to be honest with you. The, the, the fearful part was just kind of, I guess, the unknown going to basic training and everything, and just being around people that you don't know and leaving your family. But the 911 kind of let's go type of deal.
1: (laughs) And Josh, what about you?
0: For me, it was, uh, I mean, I, you're, you're torn. I mean, you're excited because now, you know, you have a mission, to put all that training towards, but at the same time, we just lost, um, you know, a thousand, I can't remember the exact number to nearly 4,000 people in one fell swoop. Um, and not to mention the next couple of decades with all the aftermath is, um, you know, we lost in firefighters and police and all the first responders that have died from cancer from nine 11, but now you get to put that training to use. And, uh, you know, being in the regular army, you're just, everyone knows, hurry up and wait. So you get down to your, your company headquarters and you're excited and you're ready, you're pumped and it's September. Now you're just kind of waiting. And then our first deployment wasn't until December and then it wasn't a combat deployment necessarily. Um, definitely wanted to go to Afghanistan, never had the opportunity. You know, there, there's an anxious side, but I wouldn't say a fearful side. I just, the middle part, the waiting is the worst part. I, you just want to get there and, and do your job. Um, so for 9-11, I think all of us, the majority of the soldiers were just ready for that next step. Where are we going to be sent? And the regular army is a slow moving beast. So, you know, special forces, those guys can just get up and go. And often, you know, as much as I criticize the Marines, that's what they're designed uh, to do as well. They're a smaller unit that can just get, get moving. So that's a nice benefit for them. Uh, well,
1: they do eat crayons, right?
0: They do eat crayons. There's, you know the uh, the way that the Meps works is uh, when everyone's brought into one room and they have um, a set of uh, crayons and a piece of paper. And if you grab the crayons and you draw, you go to all the other branches. And if you eat one, then you go to the Marine.
1: Oh, that's funny. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Did you see heavy action then, Josh?
0: I guess it'd be hard to defined heavy i'd say more than some less than others
1: how about were you ever worried that you weren't going to come out of that fight alive
0: so the two the two times i think i carried the most fear and the most anxiety were when we were crossing that dmz zone between kuwait and iraq that oh dark 30 morning and then pretty much the third to last day that we were leaving iraq because for whatever reason and all the army's infinite wisdom our little fob was about a 30 minute or so drive to the uh, air force base where we were going to fly out and be done well they take all our weapons and all our equipment and our protective gear away from us minus our helmets and so we're riding in these five tons and and uh, humvees without anything with a couple of gun trucks and so I thought, I say, just God, if I'm going to die, I don't want to die you know, on the third day out. And then during the whole year I was there, if God was going to take me, I was prepared for that, but I didn't want to get blown up on the toilet because <laughs> they mortared the heck out of us <laughs> and they would hit near. And I just didn't want to be that soldier using the toilet and get blown up.
1: Guess what? After you got blown up, you probably wouldn't even care. <laughs>
0: No, but that was just. But you
1: didn't want your mom to receive something that said your her son got blown up on the toilet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there was one night that uh, I would, you know, showers were few and far between. But towards the end of our deployment, we had established some showers, and there was one night I was showering, and we got mortared, and I I was soaked with soap and everything, and I just put my flak jacket on, and I was in my boxers and sandals, just. You basically just have to wait till it's over if, if you're not on the perimeter.
1: Uh, John, so here you are. You're a chaplain's assistant. That can be a heavy duty if I'm understanding that, correct?
2: Yeah, you're, it can be. Uh, you're just in full support of the chaplain. You're his driver. You're his bodyguard. You're his secretary. You're pretty much you're his right-hand man. Because the chaplain doesn't carry a weapon in war. No, he carries, no, he carries a Bible.
1: He doesn't carry a gun.
2: No, I think it, it might have changed since I've been out, like been, uh, with him being able to carry a, a sidearm. Yeah, but we carry the M16. We we're just his driver. And yeah, if, if some things went down, then he, yeah, he, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have anything. So yeah, you're pretty much, uh just looking out for him you hear a lot of stories because a lot of the soldiers they come to the chaplain just for for grief hardship any kind of counseling they need things rough on marriages and 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 relationships and family back home just anything that that comes back to the chaplain so that was all confidential for him for everybody that he would see but I would still have to be a part of it because I'd still be friends or make friends with soldiers within the unit and the battalion um, because I was his his assistant.
1: How many deployments did you have?
2: Once I left the States, I got stationed in South Korea. I was there for 19 months. So I actually, that was my only duty station. I was in for a short term, the, the minimal, and I was in South Korea the whole time.
1: When was both of your exits from the military or when were, I should say.
2: I got out in, uh, November, December timeframe, 2003, my initial, uh, commitment was two years and two months. And then once you get out, you have to still commit for the eight years. I'd be in the inactive ready reserves for five years and 10 months for the remaining time of the eight years. So I really didn't know what it was like to be a soldier in the in the States. I was a soldier in South Korea the whole time. So that was all I knew. I technically got out
0: twice. I did uh, August of 2000 to August of 2004. And then I missed it. So I went back in in December of 06 and then got out again. That was the, the National Guard. Um, and then I got out again February of 2010.
1: What? does it mean for you to be a part of the service what kind of camaraderie do you have you two are brothers do you feel that brother connection with other people in the military and what did the military teach you what is something that you will always keep with you
0: wow military especially i think 20 some years ago i mean teach you a lot like john said earlier he he was uh uh, just kind of needing direction and structure and and that definitely gives that to you especially for me at 18 for whatever reason i knew that if i went to college that i just was gonna party and and drink and just get absorbed and fall into all that so thankfully i made the decision to go in and i turned 21 in iraq and so that was probably a really good thing for me because i couldn't even have any drinks and then yeah it develops you and as a man I'm not saying I just became a man overnight you know when between basic training and deployments but every challenge we don't we don't um, grow and develop as a human being during comfortable times we do that during discomfort and basic training is designed for discomfort your training itself is designed for discomfort just going out downrange you know when you're at well uh, for John and in Seoul, and South Korea, and for myself at Fort Carson, you go downrange for anywhere from two to six weeks at a time. So, no phones. You're not eating out. You're not. You don't see your car. All that stuff is just designed to break you down and then build you back up. That they do a very good job of that. Because I wasn't the same. I think the people, probably the two people that you could ask or that that could tell you the best, uh, or describe, I should say, describe how I change from my time especially in Iraq would have been my mom and my sister I wasn't always a confident or just speak the truth kind of guy prior to all that that kind of came out uh, during my service uh, because once you're in and you sign that dotted line I mean the time to beat around the bush there isn't time for beating around the bush there isn't time for soft-spoken you just you want to get the job done and somebody's feelings get hurt sorry I'm doing better than I used to as far as that goes speaking the truth with love instead of just speaking it but you develop as a young man and uh, as far as camaraderie goes there's no doubt uh, the guys that I served with love them dearly uh, would do anything for them definitely talk uh, still to this day in fact we had a reunion for the guys I went to Iraq with um, wow it's been five six years now but Um, We all got together at at Tahoe and just hung out and that that's going to last for a lifetime. Doesn't matter if we don't talk for a year and you just pick up right where you left off.
1: And what about you, John?
2: So for me, the army taught me camaraderie, brotherhood. There was females that I was serving around, too. So call it sisterhood, too, but both male and female and family, you have to treat the person to the left and right of you as family. It doesn't matter their skin color. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter their upbringing. It doesn't matter at all. Everyone is, is just on the same same view. You don't look down on the person. You have to work as a team. It's a, bit, it's a big team. So if a team isn't gonna work together, they fail. And that's what the army does not teach you. If you fail in the army, that can lead to death. So you have to work together. Accountability is huge. And so that's what taught me. And Josh mentioned that he's still close friends with all the people, well, the guys that he served with when he was overseas. And me too. I I made a lot of friends, but I can tell you that the friends I had then, and I served with then, it kind of transitioned out. I'm not as close to them, but I became closer to more people I served next to when I was actually playing comp- competitive, uh, higher levels of softball, because that was my thing growing up. Because when I joined initially, the recruiter told me that I could be a military athlete and I believed him because the recruiters are going to tell you what you want to hear. And
1: it's all about the numbers.
2: Yep. So I joined on September 11th, 2001, and he told me I could be an athlete. Well, I didn't become an all-army athlete until 2003. So that whole year and everything, or 19 months of developing in Korea, developed me to uh, just develop and hone my skills within the softball industry and be an all, all-army or military athlete. And that was actually my job when I actually transition to getting out of the military, which, which was great.
1: What have you both been doing since you got out of the military? Josh, you were talking to me before that you were a police officer and you're no longer a police officer.
0: Yeah. So like I said, my last deployment was to Kosovo when I signed my contract for the National Guard. Uh, As any vet will tell you, when, when the Army wants theirs, they'll get it. So I signed a contract and two out of the three years was stabilized. And almost to the day that last year, they plucked me to go to Kosovo, which as far as the deployment goes, it's like a vacation. Absolutely beautiful country, internet service. I went to school full-time while I was there. I just went to school, did PT and did my job. That was my hardest deployment because I had my wife and my firstborn son at home and I missed from one to two um, for him. And so that was tough. I'll never forget one. Uh, well, it was their morning, I think. So it was my evening They're on the computer. And I'm talking to my son via Skype. I think at the time he was one and a half-ish, and he went and reached behind the computer looking for me. That was gut-wrenching, and that's the essential reason why I, you know decided to no longer pursue the service, even though professionally I would have loved to, um, but family first. Um, so I got out my second time, February of ten, and then applied to law enforcement agencies, which. At that moment after the recession was very hard because you might have five spots um, open at any given agency and there'll be 500 applicants. God opened up an opportunity locally at our local sheriff's department here in uh, in Inyo County. We live in Bishop, California, Um, and I got hired there in May of 2010. Uh, I definitely had um, aspirations to go into law enforcement. Being a paramilitary organization, I thought I would Thrive and fit right in, and my first five years uh, were just absolutely amazing. Loved every second of the job. I'd come on thirty minutes early and go off as late as I could. Obviously, not not charging overtime. I just loved it. Loved the deputies. The curtain was kind of unveiled for me in that fifth year, as far as uh, administration goes. I'm passionate and love our uh, first responders and law enforcement, the deputies, officers that are on the ground. Um, I lose a lot of respect for administrations in my experience. So I started to see a lot of issues. The first five years in law enforcement is like your honeymoon phase, but then the tough times start to come. So I'm not one to sit back and not do anything about it. In 2018, uh, with eight years on as a deputy, I ran for sheriff against a gentleman that I didn't believe needed to be the sheriff. Needless to say, I lost that election and had since been fired. Now I'm no longer a police officer. Yeah.
1: How do you feel about that?
0: Um, well, like I said before, we don't always, we don't grow in comfortable circumstances. We grow in discomfort. I definitely miss the cop side of things. I miss getting children out of a terrible home. I I miss, you know, just a really good case from start to finish where you feel a sense of accomplishment, put in the hard work and, you know, what you go to sleep at night knowing that, at least as far as your part goes, that you provided justice, wherever that may be, because I think the public's view of law enforcement largely comes from television or negative media, and that's just not the case. I mean, there's so many... Small calls in between the big stuff that makes the actual news that nobody sees that just deputies struggle with. I, I, when I say deputies, I'm I'm officers and all that through PDs and, and state highway. Between seeing traffic accidents, between you know going to a house where a dead body's found, whether it's natural or whatever the case, those things pile up. And so the, the public doesn't see a lot of that. I support all those guys and gals so much. We just need good people in the administrative positions to support our guys and gals that are putting in the work behind the driver's wheel. And so as far as I I don't regret doing it at all, Um, put my family through a lot of stress and I knew that if I lost that I was likely going to get fired and that obviously came to fruition, but uh Um, then got opened up this door at my current job. And like I said, I have a great schedule, great boss, and I'm still friends and in touch with all the good cops in my local area. I wouldn't change it. I've had time now to do so much more. I know my schedule between now and if I stay in this current job, the next 10 years, you know, versus as a cop, you don't know if you're going to get off on time every single day. And um, John was a big, supporter during that whole time still is to this day and so i get to do things like this weekend john and i did another um spartan down in um big bear and
1: i saw that on facebook
0: yeah and then being able to do that you know with frank a couple months ago and oew and so all that stuff is again i, I wouldn't change it even though it sucked <laughs> i never thought in my life that i would get fired from anything because people that do know me know who I am and what I'm about, it sucked, but I wouldn't change it.
1: And John, what has your road been since you got out of the military?
2: Well, I, once I got out, I went straight to junior college and I finished up junior college and graduated and then fitness and softball has always been a big part of my life. So right when I was getting out of the military, I became an all army athlete. So within the military, what you can do is you, you put together a huge profile or a huge resume. What I built was a softball resume. And what you do use, you send it off to headquarters. And headquarters was in uh, Texas, San Antonio. And what they do is out of all those applications, whatever it may be, 50 to 100, uh, they only choose 15 they hand choose maybe 15, 20 people. No, no, no. They, they choose about 20, 25. I'm sorry. And then what they'll do is with those 25 people, they'll cut 10 people and then they keep 15 on the team. They flew me from South Korea to down to Texas, to San Antonio. And it's a two-week trial. You try out and you show what you got. And in those two weeks, you either cut or you stay. Once you're cut, you go back to your duty station. And once you stay... You stay there and you'll stay for another month. And what you do is at the end of that month, you'll do all armed services, which the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, and Army, they'll all come together and they'll meet in Florida and they'll just play three games a day for three days straight. And the best record wins gold medal. And I went in 2003 and we won a gold medal that year. That's one of my highest achievements in softball is winning that gold medal. So softball... That's what was really carried me over into my civilian life because that's where all the brotherhood and the camaraderie has really came about. And I've really had made some really great friends. From there, after I served college, that was all great, got my degrees. What really kind of changed me too is connecting with the Wounded Warrior Amputee softball team. I had been living in Minnesota at the time. And one of the coaches asked me if I wanted to come out as a veteran and play on their team. So the Wounded Warrior Amputee Softball Team—they're a full team that is comprised of uh, athletes that are missing their limbs, left arm, right arm, uh, leg amputations, and uh, even even some some uh, veterans have some. A lot of their you know they're not missing their limbs, but there's they still have some. PTSD and other things, and they're able to play on the team, but it was such an honor to be invited to play with them because I just felt like I'm just another veteran. And to my left, there's a gentleman missing his left arm from elbow down, and he had a prosthetic on it. He'd got a ground ball one time, and he got so fed up with his prosthetic, he took it off and he threw it. And he threw it off to the side, and I'm like, man... And then to my right, I have another individual that is missing his, his left arm. I became really good friends with him. His name is Greg Reynolds. What he does is when he goes up to, to pick up a ball, he'll scoop it with his glove. He'll lift it up with his glove. And in one motion, he'll, he'll flip his glove off and he'll grab it with his hand and he'll throw it in. And then to the right of him is another guy I, I became really good friends with, Nick Clark. And Nick Clark has actually been one of your guests. Recently yes. on, on the yeah. podcast here. And so I became really good friends with those two right there. A few other that I've been really close with, but those two have really helped me and really kind of invited me to some things that have really changed my life, which includes tough mutters or Spartan races or hunting trips. And that was really kind of since I've been out of the military to answer your question. I'm a certified personal trainer and I I do some other things for work, but really I, I give of myself by giving of myself. I I feel a total, like not, not reassurance, but more like a satisfaction that I'm doing something that's outside of just myself. And that's what softball has kind of brought me to. Um, I know it's just a game, but it's more than a game to me. It's more of camaraderie. And with that Wounded Warrior empty softball team, they've been really close to my heart and everything. And, and to this day, they still play. What they do is this team travels around. The, they've actually gone out of the country, but they travel stateside, put an exhibition on on Friday evenings and then Saturdays. And they'll compete against able-bodied teams like police officers, firefighters, and they do great. And they beat them and they're fine-tuned athletes. It's, it's very respectful and, and, and humbling to see how they adjust to their injuries on and off of the field, because I've, I've seen it all. I've seen the, the PTSD side of things, and I've seen also the, the struggle of physically, but every athlete or individual that I've came across, they don't let that stop them. They have a motto, and it's life without limbs is not limitless. They take that to the higher levels and just, that's what the military has taught me, just a whole teamwork side of things. And, and with these hunting trips, I've met guys along the way, like Nick Clark, he invited me for a hunting trip. And that's what really brought me to a friendship with Frank Fields. It's it's like a full circle. And then now all these guys become family. That's what's really part of the, the military acronym, the army acronym. I wanted to key point this is the acronym is leadership. When we're taught in the Army, leadership stands for loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. So L-D-R-S-H-I-P, all the way down. And one that always sticks out to me is selfless service, because doing things for others is way more satisfying than doing things for yourself.
1: I have two last questions for you. The first one is... Josh, why did you think it was important for me to hear and for my listeners to hear John's story and John, the same will go for you. Why was it important for my listeners and for me to hear Josh's story?
0: So, Gina, you know, everything he just said is exactly why I reached out because there's no one that has a bigger heart. Than John, you know, as far as selfless service, you know, other than the sense of a greater purpose and accomplishment, you know, that's that's why John does it. He flies all over for these guys. I know they're appreciative, and you can just see it's it was fun to watch, especially when I first met Frank. I haven't got to meet all of John's um, Winter Warrior buddies, but when I first met Frank and uh, their friendship, and at that point they'd only been friends, I I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but less than a year. And as a fellow veteran, you just see a brotherhood. Just It's that quick. And seeing his excitement because he took Frank to our local Eastern Sierra Disabled Sports program. And at the time, it was a mountain biking excursion and then skiing, or vice versa. Which, which one was first, John? I can't remember, but skiing and then biking. Okay, skiing and then biking. And all those reasons, Tina, are exactly why I emailed you that I thought uh, John would be a good fit for your podcast after listening to frank and a couple others and then since then listening to more you know just who who he is as a man who he develops and how he serves others and then i get to see his relationship with my kids i have two boys and then my baby girl he's definitely earns that title of uncle there's no doubt about it
1: and frank may not have legs but he is certainly bigger than life and personality isn't
0: he (laughs) yeah he sure
2: is all right
1: john your turn
2: Um, why did I recommend my brother to, to tell his story? I feel like I feel like he's part of uh, my story because <clears throat> I don't know. I he may be my, my 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 younger brother, but um shoot, I remember this time where he told me his officer saved his life over there because he heard he heard a noise under the rocks and I was like man that was so close that's so close to uh losing my brother I wanted to hear his story personally you know yeah maybe his brother but I don't know all, all of his whole story of his military career just by these little things yeah like he didn't mention that he has his officer over in Colorado to thank for really being attentive in the area and listening. And there was some kind of bomb or explosive that was about to go off. And he, he just through a leadership instinct and saved all their life. Just stuff like that. I want to hear my brother's story. I didn't want this to just be all about me. And it's, it's great that we get to do this together because that goes back to this last weekend. Josh was doing this. Spartan race and it's a 10k and he, he decides to do it at the worst place Big Bear mountain which is just crazy elevation and what happened was I don't know I was talking to Frank one day and Frank was like why don't you just surprise your brother and go do it with him I'm like oh man <laughs> all right I, I guess I could and then Josh told me that his friend got sick and he the guy that was supposed to do with him I was like, oh, here we go. I guess this is meant to be. So I wasn't going to let my brother do the Spartan race alone. So I went down there and, and, and joined him. And yeah, the Spartan race is a lot different than the Tough Mudder. You don't need too much assistance from others, but it's more of, of just kind of being there with the person and doing it along them and, and cheering them on, doing burpees together or whatever the discipline is for not completing the course. But We did it together. We finished together. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast together with my brother, because I wanted to personally hear his story.
1: Josh, would you mind really quickly telling us what happened that day since you didn't share it or is it too hard?
0: I'll just say that I had, uh, I just had a great commander, um, that, uh, I'd love to get in touch with. I've tried over the years, but, um, One thing I I learned when I went over there, right before we went to Iraq, I got selected to be the uh, commander's driver. And at the time, a lot of, well, not at the time, I think most of the time, soldiers think that when you're in headquarters, you know, we call them headquarters pugs. Basically, they don't do anything. They just get to be in air conditioning and, you know, have a good sleep schedule. Well, I learned later that's not not the case. Uh, I also learned later from my second commander overseas that, It's actually an honor to be selected as the commander's driver, um, because much like John's responsibility to chaplain assistant, you're, you're that guy's bodyguard. You're his, uh, radio man. You're his mechanic. You're, you're, you're everything. You have to have all that stuff prepped. And I had a great officer that our second commander. I didn't care for our first commander very much, but I did the job anyway. But, and then when we had a second commander come in after three months in country, I became friends with him and, uh, he was a troops guy. There was no doubt that uh, he looked out for us, and uh, and then in turn we would go the extra mile for him. So he's uh, just a, a solid man. That, you know, there's as far as close calls go in Iraq. There's there's always there's some you know about it, and then there's thousands that you don't. The local Iraqis were good. I mean, a lot of them were good people and wanted to help. But there's one time we're we're like as engineers, we said we blow stuff up, and uh, so that means moving ordnance. Um, all over the place. And we would be moving a cache of mortars to prevent those from being used in IEDs. And sometimes we'd use the local Iraqi police. and They're a very um, casual people tossing them around. And one time they dropped a, a small <laughs> 50 millimeter mortar on its head and praise God it didn't, didn't uh, blow up. And so we didn't use them anymore for help. But uh,
1: probably a good uh, idea.
0: There's close calls all the time. Ones you know about uh, which would be, I think, on the low side, a handful, and then hundreds that you'll you'll never
1: know about. And is that why you didn't really want to share that? Because you're no different than any other soldier over there who experienced that? That's what yeah, I'm getting. Like I, said I, earlier, I, I, I have I, a feeling I, that you're a very humble person. Am I right, John? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess it depends on who you ask. I think a lot of civilians uh, confuse confidence with arrogance. I think I get that a lot.
1: Really? People, is he arrogant john
2: no he's confident he's not cocky there's okay. a difference
1: okay well here is my last question that i ask every single guest what does america mean to you
0: john go ahead
2: america means to me i would like to mention my grandpa hansen that's what america means to me somebody that came before me did his duty stood tall for his country retired marine officer pearl harbor survivor me and josh got to be around him growing up and yeah we were little we didn't get to hear too much of his stories but one thing i do remember is we all got to watch the pearl harbor movie with him it was kind of cool being next to him watching that poor horror movie because he he was really paying attention to everything he thought it was well written out but he's there's he's, he said there's some some different things that went differently but America means to me is yeah the times these days America is kind of you know up and down but red white and blue always respecting the flag the valued freedom that we have and our, our forefathers and my grandma too, even if, you know, the, the support from home, that's just, it's just all big team effort. And just the country is we're, we're lucky to be in America because we have so much freedom. It's because of the ones before us. And that's what freedom means to me.
1: Josh, why don't you end it for us?
0: Uh, so America to me is, uh, it's a blessing. Um, we didn't earn being born here for whatever reason, God chose each and every one of us to, to be born here. And it's a blessing that we shouldn't squander. Um, I definitely don't plan on squandering that. It doesn't matter if I'm wearing a uniform anymore you know, or not. My job now is to, to raise two young men and my daughter. And I think Often we hear, you know, parents want to create a better and easier life for their kids. Um, And I'm not saying that's a a bad outlook. That's not my outlook. I'm not here to to make their life easier. My goal is I want to raise young men and young leaders to take on challenges because look at what's happening in our country. My job as a dad is to raise them not to be comfortable, but to face the discomfort and face the challenges that they are gonna have because I have a son that's getting ready to be a freshman and the challenges that they have in high school are so different than the ones that that John and I had 20 some years ago. And it's scary as a parent and we just, we can't hold them at home forever. And my job is to prepare them for all of that. And I hope other parents the same because making their life easier doesn't make it necessarily better. So America is just a blessing to live here is because we could have been God could have had us born in any number of horrible countries and the reason that our flag is flown across the world is it's a it's a beacon of light, it's a beacon of freedom and God developed this country for that and I hope it continues to stand for that and I know I'll stand for that until the day God takes me home.
1: I cannot think of a better way to end it. Josh, John, thank you very much. Thank you so, so much for sharing your American story with us.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank
2: you, Tina.
1: Don't miss a single episode of We the People, Our American Story podcast. Visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. Choose your favorite platform and subscribe. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America.